This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 81. Today we have some really interesting listener mail. And to help me review that mail and answer questions, I'm not just one, but two co-hosts today. I have Eric Crump. Hey, Eric, how are you? Hey, Carl. Good day. And I have with us somebody who hasn't been around for a while, somebody we truly miss, but he's back on the mic again, and that's Tom Wachowski. Welcome, Tom. Hello, Carl. Hello, Eric. Tom, this is, uh, it's been a little bit of a break. I know uh, you've had some work you've had to do, and it's great to, to have you back to talk, because I, I know a lot of people have missed you on the, on the show. Yeah, it's good to be back behind the mic. I had a busy fall and a busy winter, but uh, we're back now, so looking forward to catching up with you on all this mail and, and uh, future episodes. Great, great. And we're going to try to we're gonna keep talking as long as we can. So just remember there's a pause button there. Uh, if you, you want to do this in two or three commutes, you can. We <laughs> normally keep this show to a, an hour show, but we're going to try to go a little bit longer. Plus, uh, another thing, too, if you have any questions, make sure you uh, write to us at the... Uh, aviationcareerspodcast.com slash contact page. We also have a new contact number. I'm not sure I mentioned it. It's 347-699-4647, and that spells dip my wings. Just remember, dip my wings. And you can leave a voicemail. Uh, We'll have that forwarded to us, and we'll actually go through those and send you an email or a voicemail. Just to mention what uh, type of stuff you don't want us to mention on the show. Also, if you do write in, uh, we do de-identify all this information. We won't mention your name unless you really want us to. Uh, and we try to get rid of any other identifying material like where you live, that type of thing. Well, without further ado, let's get moving on into the questions that we have. Oh, we have some really, really good questions. Our first one, and just to, to mention, these are go back a little ways. This first one actually was in uh, January 12th, and, and we had uh, had a few things in my personal life had to take care of, so... We're just catching up. So let's get started with one from back in January 12th of this year, and it's about some general stuff. Uh, He says, Carl, I just wanted to write you a note. First, to thank you for helping me get squared away with my membership. So a big thanks for that. By the way, membership. We do have a membership for $5 a month and $50 a year. What that includes is the scholarships guide, also certain uh, videos, the pilot jobs book, which is actually produced by Tom Wachowski, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool that you can use to help you move to the top of the list of people that are actually going to be hired. We also have certain other things like the uh, Pilot's Guide to, to Winter Flying. We have uh, another, a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. And that membership also help, uh, includes membership in Expert Aviator where we talk a lot about some technical topics. So just remember all that's included in the membership. We do have the book coming out this month for this just the Pure Scholarships Guide. We wanted to make it available for download, so that's going to be uh, $9.95, and it's going to be also uh, in PDF format, Amazon, and in iBooks. So just a quick uh, shout-out there about that. Anyway, moving on, back to his email. He says, I look forward to taking advantage of all the resources. Also, just to throw my perspective out there, I'm about to turn 59 in 12 days. Well, happy birthday. Uh, I don't consider myself out of the running for a pilot job quite yet. I'm a bit of a pragmatist and don't really see myself sitting in the front office of an asset of Southwest, Delta, or the like. I'm a bit more hopeful of the regional job, but don't see that as much too much of a possibility either. It may be possible, and I certainly would like to give it a shot. There are a lot of variables in life that might preclude that. 
I live in a small town where the aviation jobs are just not that readily available. But then I haven't been looking as diligently as I might after I complete my multi-training and CFI. I have set a goal to get the CFI before my VA benefits expire in 2016, but more specifically by the end of the year. Like I said, I'm about to turn 59. I'm a veteran and have found a school that accommodates my use of the GI Bill quite nicely. First of all, by the way, thank you for your service. I completed my commercial last year and the instrument the year before. My schedule and the weather have made it difficult to go much faster, which when you're my age is not that good, as you know. And, uh, yeah, believe me, I know. I was bitten by the... This is great here. I love how he proceeds here. I was bitten by the flying bug when I was about 17 when a friend's father took a group of us in a Cherokee 6. I think it was a Shondell he did over Elliot Key out in Biscayne Bay. I got my private in 1977, and because of finances and other things, you've heard the story before, I got out of flying for a while. Although I did keep my biennials up to date, I was re-afflicted with the itch once again in the mid-90s, and have been actively seeking to upgrade my rating since then. While serving in the Navy up till 2007, it was tough. So I've made the most of my progress in the last couple years. It took me seven years to finish my instrument rating. I've accumulated about 600 hours. Anyway, given my age and rate of progress, I'm thinking that CFI might be the best bet. I may be able to get a contract job occasionally also. And here's the question. What would be your perspective regarding my prospects? Keeping in mind that although I am not a project an attitude, I may not project an attitude that conveys my bright future, I certainly remain optimistic and would welcome any advice and encouragement. Also a realistic view, although painful to hear, may help immensely. Thanks for your time and consideration. Wow, that was that was a great email and I think uh, you know looking at an aviation career as a second career uh, it seems like it to you here is is a wonderful thing. Looking at a CFI is a great thing. I wouldn't totally discount uh, the regionals. The only reason I say that is the fact that at the regionals, uh, the, the only the one good thing I should say, once you get a regional job or any airline job, you can say you're an airline pilot, and then when you move out there and start instructing, especially in instruments, you can use that uh, for your marketing play. What do you think, Eric? Well, I think um, I think this guy's got uh, just a a ton of possibility, really, and and I think that's mainly because uh, he's in love with aviation. And um, I, I've seen people who were young, who had everything going for them, the money they needed, and just couldn't make it through the business because they didn't have the passion. And um, and this guy is not afflicted with that problem, and I I really respect that. Um, it looks like it's been a childhood thing. I was the same way. I I got bitten when I was thirteen, so um, maybe. Um, not not quite not quite in my sixties yet, but I will be soon <laughs> enough, I guess. Hopefully, maybe I'll make it that far. Um, and uh, you know, I know what it's like to have a lifelong love of aviation. I really respect that. And I think, uh, like you said, Carl, there's there's no ruling out a regional possibility at this point, just because you know I'm I'm hearing the same thing. I'm sure you are, and everyone else is. You know, they're paying uh, bounties for people to bring in their friends and, and all sorts of things. Uh, the need in the regionals is what it is, and it's not going to change anytime soon. So, you know, that being a thing, I, I wouldn't rule that out either. Um, but there again, you know, I, I chose the the career instructor route because I just I fell in love with that part of aviation. Um, you know, and I don't, you know, I can't speak for your exact experience, but um, that first time you get in the airplane with a student pilot and 
you know, you see that aha moment, the light bulb turn on, um, it's a pretty addictive feeling. So you, you may find yourself really content uh, with a with a career, a second, third career, whatever it is, um, in aviation instruction, and that's a perfectly valid thing. I I supported my family on that for many years, um, and it it can be a, a very lucrative profession. So don't uh, don't turn away from that possibility either. Well, yeah, I think it's important to realize it can be a lucrative profession. One concern I have is is what he mentioned. He's in an area uh, in a small town. Sometimes small towns are a little bit tougher if you say you don't have a university to make some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually teaching, so that that might be a little bit tougher. But of course, you, you never know. With with a little bit of uh, networking and a little bit of talk, you might you might find somebody that can. Help. And there are people who have very lucrative careers doing the uh, what I call the the traveling show CFI thing. Um, you know, you contract with a client, you fly all over the United States for two weeks. Person gets rated, you go back home, and you pick up another client. I know several people who do that um, in the Northeast. And some who do it in the Northwest, where you know year-round flying really isn't a possibility, um, and so they'll contract with uh, students, um, basically go to where they are and then fly them around. They end up back at that uh, at that destination. You get a lot of real-world flight experience, and um, and you know I never chose that path for myself, um, but uh, you know it sounds really exciting, and uh, it's a great way to see the country. You know another thing too about the. As far as making money as an instructor, there are some really good, high-paying instructor jobs out there. Uh, you know, there's companies that have instructing jobs in simulators uh, at airlines. Uh, I was in class with a gentleman who was 66 years old, uh, which is beyond the retirement age for an airline, but he had so much experience. They hired him on as a simulator instructor. So don't forget, it's not just in the airplane. You can instruct in ground school. You can instruct in a simulator. And working for an airline or a large simulator-based company, you really can make some good money. And that, that's uh, definitely important to keep in mind. Well, appreciate that question. Um, Tom, did you want to have anything to add before we move on to the next one? Well, I think maybe the only thing is, you know, good for him at, uh, at that kind of latter stage in life to still have the energy and, and the health and, uh, you know, all those decades of experience in terms of living behind him. He's got a good foundation to move forward. So uh, go for it. Why not? Well, hopefully we've we've helped him uh, in in his thoughts and, and given him some encouragement and some ideas, and that's what we try to do here. So, I, I think with those you can move forward. We'd love to hear back from you. So definitely write us if you have any any further updates on uh, on what you're doing in your in your progress. Well, our next question comes in. Uh, it says, uh, Carl, I've listened to your show for a couple of years now, and I've have always wanted to fly for a living. I had originally aspired for military aviation, but it did not work out. I interviewed with quite a few Air National Guard units, so I at least tried, just never made it past the interviews, or boards as they call them. I've since focused on civil aviation. I just recently obtained my CFI airplane single engine land, a certificate, and I'm looking to make the jump from my current job to flying for a living. I've always been involved with aviation. I received my private pilot certificate for free while in high school thanks to an education program. That's awesome. I joined the Air National Guard out of high school as an F-16 crew chief, used the GI Bill money to get my bachelor's from Embry-Riddle worldwide, and then used my money left in my GI Bill to get my AMP certificate, instrument rating, and commercial certificate. As said before, I just recently received my CFI airplane single engine land, paid out of pocket. Unfortunately, my current full-time job, a maintenance operations supervisor uh, for a company, has the golden handcuffs on me for at least the next four to five months. 
I've attempted to get part-time CFI employment from all the flight schools in my area, but to no avail. I'm not giving up. Just figured if I pop my head in every couple of weeks, something might turn up. My wife has a very decent job as a nurse, and she'll be the breadwinner until I can get more dual hours given under my belt and add the double I and MEI to the list of accomplishments. That's uh, instrument instructor and multi-engine instructor. We are looking to relocate when I decide to make the jump to full-time CFI employment. Our current geographic focus for full-time flight instructor employment is Florida. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, and I'd have to agree <laughs> with that one. As a matter of fact, he continues. It says, it appears that Florida has the best chance for me to make a good living as a CFI, and I'd have to agree. And it's where the education system and livable climate conditions intersect. I'm also trying to position myself near a hub, so if I end up flying with the airlines, I can be a single commute away. So we have narrowed it down to Orlando, Tampa, or Miami to include the communities surrounding those metropolises. My wife and I have visited Orlando in late June, early August, so we know the humidity levels are okay with dealing with them. Along with that, I'm not closing any doors in my aviation career. If I end up with the opportunity to do corporate aviation, I will not turn it down if it looks like the right opportunity for my family and me. I know this is a long-winded letter, and you probably don't have a whole lot of time to read things like this, but after listening to your podcast for so long, I feel like this is how I can give you the gratitude for things you do for the aviation community. Your way of thinking very often runs in line with what I think it regards the conditions of the aviation community. And it's good to hear a firm affirmation from someone in the industry that being a pilot is exactly what I thought it would be. Now on to my point. I want to go over my plan for moving my family to Florida and make sure I'm not missing something. My wife and I plan to visit the cities I listed above in the beginning of June. I will also visit Lakeland and St. Petersburg. While there, I told my wife I want her to focus on looking at the neighbors that she'd like to live in. Once we determine where we want to live, I'll get dressed up and start taking resumes in and speaking with the chief instructors at schools in the area who are looking to live. The real questions are these. What things am I missing in my plans? What should I wear into school, suit, or just slacks and a button-up tie? Well, that's a that's a, a really really interesting question as to as to what what you need to wear uh, when you walk into school and you start doing an interview. Tom, you know what do you, what would you recommend someone who wants to move into a, a job be wearing when they move into like a school or something like that? Well, I think that the position, and maybe you'll agree or disagree with this, Carl, is irrelevant. Uh, you cannot ever be overdressed enough. And so I'm a fan of the suit. I'm a fan of polished shoes, you know, a haircut that's a week old, everything impeccable because it sends a message, right? It sends the message okay. that you're serious. And uh, so I, I, I believe you just can't overdress enough. No, no. And, you know, uh, going back to what he said uh, about uh, the, the making a living in Florida and where to choose to live, here's, here's a kind of an interesting statistic. You know me. I love math. I like statistics. Uh, I did a little research. It wasn't that hard to find that the area where airline pilots make the most money is actually in the Miami area, uh, hmm. Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. So I thought that was pretty fascinating to, to find that out. And uh, not sure why. I you know that I haven't drilled into that whole 
part of it, but it yeah, was, that is an interesting statistic. Yeah. I know we, I know I didn't uh, uh, disclose exactly where this gentleman is, but uh, uh, in in reading with you here, um, you know, I would recommend maybe he look north because I know from personal experience there are lots of opportunities up north uh, from where he's at, and plenty of opportunities for you know one hub commutes and the corporate world that he had mentioned. So Florida might be something new and fun, but uh, don't rule out looking up north. Sure, sure. As far as a CFI job, yeah, it's a little easier to make money because you can instruct all year round. Uh, yeah, even in exactly. bad, we had a bad weather today, and I flew a flight. Uh, you just wait for the weather to change to good weather, and that's all you have to do. Right, so that, that makes life a lot easier. But uh, well, even when I flew corporate, I mean, I was still an active instructor. I mean, you know, I would fly, um, you know, maybe three three days a week corporate and the rest would be instruction and I would fill up my schedule based on the trips I had. And it, it does take a little flexibility there and you do have to have students who, you know, understand, you know, that your schedule can change, you know, minute by minute. Um, but, uh, some of the, some of the most fun instructing I did was, you know, sort of playing both sides of that fence, I suppose. And it, it is kind of a, um, a way to augment times during, you know, slow corporate seasons, which they do exist. Um, you can sit around for a week and stare at the wall and wonder if you're going to fly. Um, whereas if you have, uh, you know, a, a, a good queue of students, we can still keep flying every day. Right. For sure. So, yeah, I, I'd say you, you, uh, you're not missing much in your plans. And I think that's great that you're including your family. That's always important. Uh, you know, I, believe me, I've been there. My, uh, my wife was a primary breadwinner, especially now. Uh, in the past few years because I changed jobs with the airlines. And when you change jobs, you go to the bottom of the list and you start over again. So we had to live on her salary, actually, for, for a little while there so until my, mine caught up again. So that's, uh, that's a good thing you have somebody to fall back on. It's just be careful, you know, that, uh, that you go into it with wide, eyes wide open. But you know what, I think, I think you're doing the right thing. And, uh, and again, always look good for anything. Uh, wearing, I, I, tell you, I tell you one thing. We had a job fair. And uh, the people that showed up in suit and tie, they stood out. And they were the ones that actually got their resume through. So it was, it was pretty interesting to see that. But uh, Thanks again for the email. Uh, let's keep uh, rolling on here. That was awesome. Uh, the next one talks about an ag pilot uh, and owner interview. That's an interesting one here. Uh, two different things. He says, Carl, I just recently discovered your podcast. I want to thank you for all the work that you and your cohorts do. To produce a quality program. Now we are cohorts, Eric and Tom. I, you are now I like this. Yes, this I like. Cool. We have a title. We nice. have a title <laughs> as cohort and, and co-host extraordinaire is what I like to say. Uh, he continues. I'm a 30 year old AMP in the beginning of a career change. My mechanic, from mechanic, excuse me, to pilot. I've worked in aviation now for 11 years, starting in the Army as a mechanic, flight engineer on Chinooks and Blackhawks, then working sea checks for 737 400s, 737-900s. Uh, now I work as a civilian contractor at DOD in a depot maintenance uh, for KC-135s. Last August, I completed my private. Only took 17 years and 44 hours, but hey, who's counting? 17 years of 40, I love that. Uh, then immediately started my instrument. Until I found your podcast, I was feeling that I was really behind the power curve. Now I'm feeling much better about my prospects. I'm interested in all kinds of piloting, but while looking through the past shows, I didn't see any shows addressing ag aviation. It'd be amazing if you could interview an owner-operator that has been successful and is willing to share their experiences. Also, you feel that an AMP with a, associates is enough to be competitive with the airlines, of course with the rest of the requirements also being met, or should I try to complete my bachelor's before applying? Additionally, 
could you go through the process for earning ground instructor certificate as I really want to get started teaching as soon as possible. Thank you again for all you've done and continue to do it. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to have Eric explain how to get your ground instructor certificate. But, uh, you know, I, I really think that the idea of um, an owner-operator is a great idea in their successes and share their experiences. But as far as an ag pilot, I do know one gentleman. Uh, he actually helped me one night. Uh, had a had a shut down an engine one night and wound up in a in an airport in the middle of nowhere. And this gentleman was up and he uh, drove me all the way back to the airport I needed to go to. And it was an hour and a half drive away, and he had to drive another hour and a half back. One thing about ag pilots, they're really really hard workers. I know we hear a lot about. Uh, and I was in a meeting the other day with commercial drone usage, especially in the ag uh, or aerial application business. Uh, but I still, I still think that's going to be something that's uh, that's coming down down the pike. Uh, it's going to be a while uh, till that actually comes to fruition. Uh, but along with ag flying, there's so many different things you can do, of course, and uh, and some banner tow, etc. Um, I don't know if you guys know anybody who's doing some ag flying, but I tell you, that is a challenging job, isn't it? It is. You know, I don't know anyone directly, but I used to fly with a gentleman who was his best friend owned and was an owner-operator of an ag operation in Kansas. And uh, boy, it sounded like he had a lot of fun. But you're right, Carl. It also sounded like he worked a lot. You know, airplanes breaking down and he would have to find pilots sometimes. And, uh, you know, one time I know they uh, had the wrong chemical in the plane and they kind of wiped out part of a field. So uh, there's a lot of moving parts to that. But, you know, I, the stories were great. The lifestyle sounded like a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, it sure does. Um, but uh, oh, and and the other thing he mentions too about the AMP within associates uh, to be competitive. As far as the regionals are concerned, yes, you're competitive. I would say that uh, it's best to mention that you are trying to get your bachelor's. Uh, once you, especially now with the regionals, as long as you basically have the ATP, you can move into a regional. Uh, but in the future, that might change. But the majors, no, you still should have your your bachelor's. Of course, if you have a whole bunch of hours, that's going to be different. Uh, but I would suggest that you get your bachelor's because most of the airlines I talk to, 95% of the applicants they take into the interviews are uh, do have their bachelor's finished. So just just definitely look at uh, completing it. As a matter of fact, one of my students I gave advice to was actually on the show a while back. Uh, he was a Czech airman uh, that we talked to, and I, I don't remember the episode. But uh, interestingly enough, he did the same thing. He finished his bachelor's after he got hired with an airline, and now you know possibly. You know, maybe looking at moving on. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, as far as a ground instructor certificate, I think that's pretty easy to get, isn't it, Eric? Yeah, actually, you don't even have to be a pilot to hold a ground instructor certificate. Um, it's two knowledge tests, the fundamentals of instructing and um, whatever ground instructor knowledge test you want. Um, I would recommend uh, the advanced ground instructor or the instrument ground instructor, as you can do the most with those. Um, but yeah, you, you're not required to actually even hold a pilot certificate at all to be a ground instructor. Um, I am a huge proponent of this mentality. Um, it's something that we do in our college program. Um, our CFI applicants go through a, uh, a very long and arduous, they would say, uh, ground training process. <laughs> Part of that is that we require them to get their ground instructor certificate and teach um, as sort of a mentor teaching program uh, for several months before they're able to um, uh, flight instruct. So it, it's sort of a, a way to learn the craft, as it were, um, and to hone your skill. It also, from personal experience, I did the same thing. Um, it makes your CFI oral exam a piece of cake because you already have teaching experience. So to go and sit in front of an examiner and teach, it, yeah, your oral will be longer than what you're used to, 
Um, but it's a lot easier than any oral you've ever gone into before because all you're doing is teaching a class. And uh, I highly recommend it and super easy to do. You just need to pass those two uh, knowledge tests and then you can go to a DPE or to uh, your local FISDO, present those two certificates and your two knowledge test reports and get a temporary certificate. It's that simple. So Eric, you think I could do that too? Uh, what get the certificate? Get, yeah, absolutely. Use it. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I, I don't know. That's up to Tom whether you can teach or not. Well, I, oh gosh, you know, Eric, is <laughs> I hope you'd sign me off. <laughs> but, but well, I mean, there I, there is an amount of money, Carl. There is always an amount of money. <laughs> I'll buy you dinner. How's that sound? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but seriously, I am looking at at getting the ground instructor certificate. It's just just something fun to do, and it, it kind of keeps you moving forward in aviation. I'm actually looking at a bunch of other certificates right now, and, and I've decided uh, not to buy another airplane, but to put my money there. Uh, so any certificate you have actually helps you tremendously. It also helps you grow personally, I feel. It's a wonderful thing. I think yeah. the idea you came up with that was awesome there, Erica, as far as teaching and then having the oral exam for the CFI makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot you can do with a ground instructor rating other than just work with flight students. I think people sort of forget that. Um, you know, there are so many new STEM-based uh, science programs in uh, high schools, um, and they love having people with aviation experience either as a, um, I mean, you can do a, a full-time sub type thing. You may even teach a class, um, sort of an elective class in high school. Um, and we, you know, we're fortunate enough through our good friends at Sun and Fun and through the Polk County School Board to work with the Central Florida Aerospace Academy here in, in Lakeland. And um, that's exactly what they do. They, they hire teachers, and um, then a lot of those teachers who have interest in aviation will go and obtain their uh, ground instructor certificate. And um, it's such a huge deal because now I'm teaching you, you know, quote-unquote ground school material. And once you've mastered that, now because I hold this credential, I can also sign you off to take the knowledge test, which is a huge deal for somebody who's, you know, 16, 17 years old to, to complete that milestone and be that much closer to earning a pilot certificate. So it's not just... For flight students at the local airport, holding a ground instructor rating can help you out in a lot of other ways, too. Awesome. Great advice. Tom, did I cut you off? You were going to say something? Um, I tell you what I was going to say is, um, you know, it sounds like he's fairly new in terms of hours. And and he talks about, you know, the ag flying and the airline flying. And, you know, I, I don't know the numbers, but I think the insurance companies would probably require quite a bit of time to sign off somebody flying an ag plane over telephone wires and stuff like that. So... The ground instructor thing, I think, might be a great way to not only cover the things you guys have talked about, but to build or, uh, you know, find and make connections so that he could slide into different types of operations that maybe he wants to. If he wants to go fly ag and he meets somebody who knows somebody, I mean, you and we all of us here talking right now have had that happen. And so, uh, you know, you look at the ground instructor certificate as, sure, a way to get out and teach. Of course, you don't know something until you teach it. um, But... More importantly, I think in terms of the career, it's a great opportunity to connect. Oh, definitely. And getting back to his point, hey, yeah, we'll, we'll try to find somebody who's got some ag flying and ag experience. You know, we, we know people, but I definitely want to put somebody on this show. Uh, they call it aerial application, and it's, it's, an, it's a pretty, uh, pretty intense uh, uh, job. I mean, uh, I've seen them out there. Uh, so. It is, and it's got its whole, a whole science to it. I mean, they've oh, got... Yeah. GPS units and they're they're you know spraying by like the uh, the cubic not cubic foot but uh, you know a, a yard the square yard I mean right down to very precise uh, parts of fields and and so on. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, who knows? Good application for drones, you know, I'm not just saying. Yeah. That. And uh, I do I know another gentleman who's, who's doing that and moving forward with that, so hopefully we'll have, have him on at some point. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks again for the question. Moving on to our next question, talking about a pilot job and a mechanic job. Uh, it says, hi, Carl. I am from Serbia and Eastern Europe. My goal is to one day be an airline pilot and aircraft mechanic in the same airline. Is it possible? Do airlines really need that? And what are the pros and cons? Thanks a lot for this podcast. Information in this podcast helps me a lot. At the moment, I'm a private pilot student, and I'm also going to school to become an aircraft mechanic. I'm 18 years old, and I'm really passionate about aviation. As far as the mechanic license, it does look great on a resume. I won't uh, kid you there. As far as the actual application at the airlines, uh, most of the folks that go to the airlines that have mechanics licenses, uh, do. there's a couple stumbling blocks here. Uh, the fact that there are two totally different work groups at an airline. You're looking at a large, large facility and also a large work group. So, for instance, you may have the mechanics union and you have the pilots union. You don't see the two of them ever mix as far as their work. Uh, so there are some, some strong fences there. Uh, so there is a challenge. On the other hand, there are times when that does help out, and I've seen people actually use their mechanics license to be able to move forward uh, with a flight that may have gotten stranded somewhere, but it's not. Mechanic license does come in well on charter flights, but uh, that's more on the corporate side of the world because I know that in the airline world, they take a separate mechanic along with them. So I would, I would say kind of focus on which one you'd rather do, the mechanic or the pilot. I would get both if you really enjoy them uh, because you can also use that in many different areas. Now, going on the corporate side, I know Tom can talk a little bit more about this, uh, but on the corporate side, I do, I do know that, that it does help a little bit to have your, your mechanics license, does it not? Yeah, it, it sure can, yes. Yeah, and now, in most of these corporate applications, I've seen uh, people that go into remote areas, it's nice to have that mechanics certificate. Uh, but in the local level, uh, I don't think there's as many people doing the maintenance as there used to be. Uh, they're usually hiring people separately or uh, contractors is what I've seen locally here. I don't know if that you've, you've run against that, Tom. You know, I've seen both. Uh, it, it seems to be, from my observation, metropolis-driven. In other words, what I mean by that is in the big cities, you know, you kind of see maybe a pilot has his AMP, maybe he helps out with a heavy check or something. For the most part, like you had mentioned with the airlines, fairly separate. But as you stray away from the metropolis, you know, resources get thinner. So, you know, a family or a company or somebody that's got an airplane would put a lot more value on the AMP because they could, uh, you know, use you in more situations where the airplane breaks and instead of having to bring somebody up from, you know, a big city, you're right there and you could fix it. Right, right. Tom, do you have, uh, excuse me, uh, Eric, do you have many people that are doing both of the, the mechanic and also pilot certificates? I do, actually, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, we have, uh, again, uh, a lot of students coming out of uh, aviation high school here, and uh, they'll focus on perhaps maybe their A&P while they're in high school, and then they want to focus on their pilot stuff, too. I have uh, a couple of students now who are in the process of pursuing both at the same time. Um, some students who obtained their A&P and now they're doing the pilot thing. Um, and I, I think it's, there was a time when a pilot who had an A&P was essentially like, uh, having a master's degree in aviation, you know, and then they created master's degrees in aviation. Um, so, and that, that's sort of, uh, it's less common now than it used to be, but the, uh, the, uh, the, the guy I flew for in Atlanta uh, who owned uh, his a 135 and a 141 certificate, AMP, also a pilot. Um, I, had a, I was flying with a student, actually, and um, 
landed at an airport on a cross-country flight. Before I could do anything about it, a student got really aggressive on the brakes and popped a tire. Um, called the boss. The boss jumped in an airplane, flew down, changed the tire, and we flew back. Um, so I, I, there's there's a lot of versatility that having both certificates brings. And I mean, I can just tell you from personal experience, um, you know, knowing the guy who's the pilot, who's also the mechanic, they speak both languages. So when the when the mechanics are trying to speak to the pilots, but it doesn't work, um, you end up being a translator. Um, and I think just in terms of uh, like Tom talked about before, we've all talked about this business is about connections. Having two certificates that get you two separate sets of connections, there really can't be anything wrong with that. I like that. That's a great idea. You know, it's interesting. They they do speak different languages. I know, especially when you get say to the airline level, you, you better be pretty specific as to what's broken. Don't say the doohickey on the top of the the glare shield. Uh, it sounds know. funny. Yeah, it, it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do like that commercial. It goes kagunk, 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 kagunk. You know, be more specific. <laughs> that, that reminds me, you guys may have seen it floating around the internet. Uh, it, it's like actual write-ups by pilots. You know, and it says, you know, left engine makes funny noise. And then the mechanic says, uh, well, had a, had a talk with a left engine. You know, <laughs> they are their own there's, languages. There's the one, very, it it very sounds right. like there's a man with a hammer beating on the firewall. <laughs> Took hammer from little man <laughs> or whatever, whatever it was. But... Yeah, it's funny. Actually, I just read those the other day. When I do um, maintenance deferments in our CFI class, I always read those. I'm like, this is how you teach your students not to write maintenance issues, um, because this is just going to get you in trouble with the maintenance department. <laughs> you know, we we laugh about it, but I think Eric, you said it, you know, it's, it's it's its own language, and that is true. And and I have seen over my career, and you guys could probably say the same thing. The, the inability to speak those two languages across the line cost money and cost time. So, you know, we joke, but uh, it is true. The A&P, having that in your back pocket could really help you be a better pilot. Great point. Great point. Well, terrific. Hey, uh, and so, yeah, I, w- I would say try to look towards both, but make sure you keep the one goal in mind. If you're going to be an airline pilot, do that. If you want to be a mechanic, uh, do that. But sometimes, especially in the United States, uh, those two can can be oftentimes separated, so, so make sure you're, you're careful there. Next question comes, uh, it's a subject of uh, Rookie CFI Tips and Tricks, an episode idea. It says, hello, Carl, Eric, and Tom. First, thank you for the podcast. It inspires me to fly again. That's awesome. Second, a bit about me. I'm a rookie CFI getting back into flying. Long story short, I left aviation for a few years while earning a master's degree and now find myself working Monday through Friday full-time with a major airline in management. Not flying, though, but I'm trying to teach part-time and build my hours on the side. Working two jobs also allows me to pay off my student loan debt. I only have about three, 350 total time and 25 hours of dual given so far in my career. I think it'd be great idea, episode idea, uh, with tips uh, you'd give a brand new instructor. I think that is a good idea. I never had a mentor other than one great former flight instructor, and I'm honestly a bit afraid of coming back to the field. We have a strange model in America where those with often little experience are expected to train those with zero experience. Wow. Here, here. That was an, I'm, I'm just, I gotta put that quote. I hope he doesn't mind me using that. Uh, I'm definitely gonna put that quote in this, this episode. Uh, he said, he, he continues, sounds crazy to me, yet I love to teach and learn. I know my students will probably teach me more than I will teach them. A few questions I thought for the episode. We could actually a- answer some of these. Number one, his question is, 
What are things CFI should always check upon approaching the airplane? I know my student may have done the pre-flight, but how do I explain uh, then when I check oil and fuel without them thinking I don't trust them? Tell you what, I did it today. I uh, flew with somebody and I said, hey, what's, uh, show me the oil and let me see the fuel. Those are a couple things I always ask about. There's a few other things I'll ask, but, uh, but primarily uh, those two things. And then I want to know where the key is uh, to the airplane and want to make sure it's out of the ignition. So those are a couple things I do upon approaching. Is, uh, Tom and Eric, is there anything that you have done in the past as far as instructing? Well, you know, I, I think maybe this might not relate to instructing, but it's something that uh, he brings up where, you know, okay, so, so maybe the student checked everything, and then you want to check it again, and you're concerned about that looking like you don't trust them. Well, you know what? In the airplanes that I fly, and Carl, the airplanes that you fly, and, and uh, Eric, in, in all of your teaching, uh, that's a best practice for both people to check. So I think if you encounter somebody who thinks, hey, he doesn't trust me, he's checking everything, well, that's grounds for maybe a different discussion. I wouldn't necessarily worry so much about you know uh, any, any awkwardness that might come of that because there's two of us in most of these planes for a reason. We may check tires, we may check oil, we may check whatever it might be by both people. So uh, don't, don't let that be a hurdle. Yeah, I always said the first time I walked out to the airplane to do a pre-flight, um, you, know, you go out with the student, the student's walking around, you're showing them everything, and I would have them get up and, you know, if it was this, whatever it was, check the fuel, check the oil, and then before we get in the airplane, I would go check it again, and they would look at me kind of funny, and, and I would say, this is something you should expect. Before I get in the airplane with you, I will always recheck the fuel and the oil, not because I don't trust you, but because, you know, four hours are better than two, and, um, and it's... it's expectation setting, I think, um, mm, yeah. up front. Um, because in that first lesson, I mean, unless you have, you know, a, a student with a serious ego problem, they know they can't fly the airplane. That's what they're there for. They're there for you to help them. So when you set that expectation at the beginning and say, hey, this has nothing to do with my trust of you. This is, this is how we're going to fly. This is me backing you up. And that's what I'm going to, that's my job as your instructor. I'm your backup. And, um, and at, I've never had an issue with a student that said, you know, well, I, it's not, after all this time, you still don't trust me. I would have students who would, who would do their, you know, their private, their instrument, their, you know, whatever. And they would come back 500 hours later and want to do some instrument recurrent with me. And I would, and we'd walk out to the airplane and I would say, do we have fuel? Do we have oil? We're full of fuel and we've got uh, six quarts of oil, but I know you're going to check it anyway. <laughs> and I check it anyway. But, but it's, it's, you know, setting that expectation and it was never an issue. And I do that with, um, I flew with our chief instructor two weeks ago and he had gone out to pre-flight the airplane. I came out and it was an expectation. I don't have to say anything. He doesn't have to say anything to me. He knows I'm going to check that stuff because that's just what you do. You know, and to add to that, there's two things. Number one, when you say you move on to the airlines, yeah. You're going to have two people checking everything, and it's uh, if someone checks the logbook, the other person's going to check the logbook. Uh, you know, there, there's there's no sense that hey, I'm just you know I'm double checking you because I don't trust you. No, it's it's two eyes, you know, four eyes really are, are are better than just two. And and another story real quickly, you know, I have a friend that went down to the Bahamas, came back, and he asked his student how much uh, fuel he had. He didn't check it himself, and then 25 miles out, the engine quit. And he, uh, he soon was sitting in the Gulf Stream. Uh, luckily, the plane floated for a few seconds because the, the tanks were empty. But uh, he, uh, he wishes he had checked those tanks before he went across the Gulf Stream. So, yes, I, uh, I don't think you should ever worry about offending anybody. 
Um, his next question, though, is what things did your CFIs do that annoyed you, uh, and what do you wish they did different? Uh, my CFIs, uh, I think that everybody has annoying, certain things that annoy, might annoy you a little bit. I, I never really had CFIs that did too much to annoy me, uh, and, and there's not much I, I wish they did different because of the fact that everybody is different, and I kind of accept that. The, the one thing that I didn't like a lot is there, every so often you might get an instructor that doesn't let you fly, and they're doing all the work themselves. You might want to start thinking twice about that, that flight instructor and ask them, hey, listen, could you let me just do some of the flying myself? Um, Eric, I'm sure you have a story or two. <laughs> yeah, let's try to keep them PG-13. You're right. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, so uh, what you just said is, is a really common one, and I think you see that a lot with low-time CFIs who just aren't used to not flying the airplane, and especially... You know, you get your your brand. That quote is so perfect. Um, but you know, you've got ten hours of dual given under your belt, and here's this student with ten hours of total flight time, and he's going to be landing the airplane, and you just can't do it. You you cannot you can't keep your hands off the controls, and um, you know, and that's part of the learning process. You got to get there. But yeah, there's you're going to annoy students really quickly um, if you're one of those people who always takes the flight controls or never gives up the flight controls. Um, you know, I, I worked with a guy once who wondered why, you know, he never got repeat customers off of the demo flights that he did. And we were fairing an airplane, uh, one day and I said, um, so we were just, we were in cruise and I said, so what do you do in a, in a demo flight? He goes, well, you know, I taxi out and I tell him what we're going to do. And we take off, we fly, we get out of the practice area. I let him play with the controls for a minute and then I take it and I bring it back to the pattern and I land the airplane. I'm like, okay, well, of course they're not going to come back. You gave them an airplane ride. That's not, that's not a demo flight. You know, they're supposed to actually touch the controls. Oh, I didn't think about that. You know, and so you just, you know, that's one of those things you definitely don't want to do that. The biggest thing for me are the the yellers or, you know, I, the, the, yeah. <laughs> the screamers. Like, that's just, I mean, it's just, you're going to talk about grading on your nerves, especially for a low-time pilot. You're already keyed up. You're already, um, you know, really overexcited anyway. And then somebody starts yelling and just, oh, my goodness, there's nothing that will break your focus any quicker or just ruin the instructional experience altogether. So, you know, normal tone of voice. Um, there's no reason to yell. There's no reason to scream. No reason to curse. Just, you know, just have a it's, – it's a simple thing. If, if somebody were doing that to you, would you be able to learn? If the answer is no, then don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good, very good. Uh, he, number three, he asks another question. He says, uh, what maneuvers should a new CFI uh, be particularly aware of or careful of teaching or explaining? Uh, my, my thing is uh, try not to land on the nose wheel and have your hands somewhat close where you can pull the, uh, the yoke back. I find that I, I wind up using two fingers very often and then asking people to push on the right rudder or the left rudder as we're landing uh, to make sure that we don't slide sideways. That's, that's a big one, and anything near the ground, just be a little more aware. Uh, I know some people, I think they do too many maneuvers close to the ground. If I'm going to do spins or anything close to a spin or someone's having a problem and it's going to spin the aircraft, I, I like to have a little bit of altitude to, to fix things. What do you think, uh, Tom? You know, I think that question's really about margins, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, it's not so much 
you want to be careful and aware in everything that we do in an airplane, but it's more so about where do you set your bottom line, your threshold that you won't cross. And that's going to be, and Eric, you could probably attest to this, it's different for different people. But uh, you know, level of awareness and alertness, that, that's always going to be there. But how far do you let that go before you say, oh, we're going to stop that, whatever that might be? Yep. How about you, Eric? Oh, geez. All of them. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I've, I've heard stories about, you know, uh, people in the pattern in an RG for the first time and they're, they're asking the instructor, okay, now when do I put the gear down again? Hmm. When do I put the gear down again? And the instructor's asleep, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe you want to be aware of what's going on in the airplane all the time. I think that's kind of important, sure. but, um, the particular things, and again, remember your student is going to model whatever you do. Um, the good, the bad, it doesn't matter um, whether they like you or hate you. They're going to do whatever you do because you're the only aviation role model they have in the cockpit with them. Now, they may have other mentors. They may have other people they know who are pilots, but you're the only person they fly with, most likely. And so just remember that whatever you pattern, they're going to pattern too. So if you get nervous every time they land, they're going to be nervous. If you get nervous every time you do slow flight installs, they're going to get nervous. If you say things like, Ooh, we got to be careful about turning stalls. We might die. They're never going to want to do a turning stall. And so I think it's winner. You're always on the alert, but you should never, you should never project, you know, the, the, the feeling of fear, dread, whatever on, because if you do it, your student's going to pick it up and they're going to amplify it 10 times harder than what you do. Good point. That is a good point. To add to that, one of the things that I always tell people when you're instructing, you're flying no matter what, even if you're flying uh, something that has an autopilot, is always, always be engaged when you're flying. Uh, You talk to certain pilots and they totally disengage from the aircraft. They become a passenger as opposed to a pilot. And then you have the true aviators that are always watching, thinking, where do I go next? What if this happens? That type of thing. Uh, you know, you're not paranoid, but you're engaged. You, you listen to the things that the engines are doing. You, you listen to the aircraft. You watch what's happening. You wonder what's going to happen next. Uh, those are the people that aren't quite as surprised, or when they're surprised, they usually come up with an option rather quickly. So always try to be engaged. That, that's something I would give you advice there. Uh, so I think that's kind of what you were alluding to a little bit there, Eric. Uh, when you said all maneuvers, so constantly being engaged, but especially close to the ground, you know, like like you said, Tom, there's there's some margin there that you want. Um, the next thing that he he asks, which I've got an answer to all my my uh, students that are looking into becoming a, a flight instructor. What recommend what recommendations for quote unquote words of wisdom would you give to someone who's a rookie such as myself? And I must um, I'm going to assume rookie CFI uh, as yourself. It is three things, and it's patience, patience, and more patience. It's very easy to lose your patience with somebody, especially after the hundredth time you've told them right rudder. Uh, and, you know, yeah, you wish you could put a recorder in and say right rudder, but it never comes out at the right time. So you're going to have to probably say that. Oh, I've tried it. It doesn't oh, work. No. No, it's like the play <laughs> button that on the G1000 I flew today. You actually hit play, you can replay the last clearance. Uh, I thought that was awesome, but there's no right rudder button on the instructor. Although sometimes it seems like that's all they're saying, uh, but it, you know, make sure you have lots of patience because you are teaching somebody how to fly. My first uh, boss said to me, he says, "You're here to teach, not to fly. Just remember that uh, you're trying to teach people how to fly." Like, wow! And uh, if you're not patient, you're gonna you're gonna lose it. Not everybody can be a be an instructor. 
Uh, and uh, that, that's something I would say. How about words of wisdom? Uh, how about, Tom, how about you? Words of wisdom as far as uh, the rookie season? You, you know, embrace the opportunity as a, a learning opportunity. I mean, and, and Eric, you could probably attest to this. Instructors who really take hold of flight instructing and use it as the time to hone and deep dive into all things aviation, when they get out into their, quote, career, if it's not flight instructing, maybe it's airlines or corporate or whatever it might be, they are better pilots. And you can tell when you're flying with them that they not only flight instructed, but they they deep dove into it. You know, they use proper phraseology, for example, and they know the math behind why the airplane's doing what it's doing or not doing what it's not doing. So, it, it, you know, I would say dive deep into aviation once you start instructing. That's good advice. Eric? Uh, well, there's there's two things, I guess. The first is one of the first things I remember my first instructor ever telling me, which was um, keep your head on a swivel and eyes on ball bearings. Um, and I have never forgotten that. I can't get in an airplane without thinking about it. And as a result, it saved me from running into a lot of airplanes in the sky um, because it has it was a just, I have no idea why that particular phrase stuck in my mind. Um, I have taught it to every student I've ever flown with. <laughs> and, um, but you know, when you're thinking about collision avoidance, it's one of those things. And it also goes back to like we were talking about before about patterning. Um, some of the, some of the most innocuous things you say will be the things that stick with your students the longest. Um, I started flying with this instructor when I was 13. I got my private certificate when I was 18. My first hundred hours in my logbook are pretty much all a credit to him. And, um, it, I mean, I still say and do things the way he did them uh, today um, because, of the, uh, because of the positive impression he made. And, and I don't think that he went into every instructional lesson trying to plant some seed that I was going to use 20 years later. But I think that I think that he understood the value of his importance in my piloting journey. Um, and the second thing, which is also something he said, which is really good advice, is keep the shiny side up and the greasy side down. Um, and, you know, that only pertains to non-acrobatic flying. So when you become an aerobatic instructor, then forget that phrase. But for right now, keep the shiny side up and the greasy side down. Well, that's awesome. You know, it's funny the things that you do say that your, your students parrot back to you. Uh, I have an inst I have a instructor who teaches in uh, scuba diving, and I did his instrument rating, and he said to me, he says, you know, I, I hear myself saying, says, now, does that make sense? Because I say that a lot, and uh, I'll say that to my students now, and especially on something that's really difficult. Now, does that make sense? And if they say no, then I move forward, because it puts the onus on me, not, you know, it's like, hey, does that make sense, the way I explained it? Uh, and he's using that a lot now, so it's amazing what your, your students do in parity, but uh, that, in a nutshell, is not the whole episode on uh, the tips and tricks for CFIs. We've come up with a lot of them, but those are some awesome, awesome questions. And hopefully we've imparted some knowledge. And I tell you what, once you're an instructor, you're always an instructor. I actually was supposed to just fly with somebody today from Lakeland uh, to St. Pete, or St. Pete, Lakeland, Lakeland, and back. Uh, I was over there you know, meeting with the, the students in the uh, flight team over at Polk State College with Eric. And uh, I had to I get to see you and talk to you in the same day. It's crazy. <laughs> that was wild. I mean, it's, it's amazing what airplanes can do. They go, like, really fast through the air. Um, and <laughs> it gets you from point A to point B. It's, it's such a cool concept. I know. It's, it's funny I'm saying that. But it, it is a neat concept. Here I am in St. Pete, and all of a sudden I'm in Lakeland, and then I'm back again. Uh, so I thought that was 
pretty awesome. It's just just having this time machine is just incredible. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I do. I found myself teaching again, and I said, hey, listen, you know, I can't help myself, but I've got three things for you if you want to hear them. And he's like, sure. And I I told him, he's like, wow. He says, I never thought of that. That's great. Thanks. Uh, so you, you just have to be careful that um, you the person is open to the the whole learning experience. You know, so that, that's that's really really important. Um, but uh, anyway, moving right along. Thanks for all those wonderful questions about being a CFI. And uh, we've actually, this is great. We've, we've what, we're not even halfway through. We're into an hour into this. We're not going to hold you too much longer. Maybe you do up to a, maybe an extra 30 minutes or so. And i got to leave some of these questions for, for the next episode. But um, moving right along, let's talk a little bit about student debt. I have a question here. It says, congratulations on producing a first-rate podcast. I'm a new listener. Please forgive me. My questions have already been addressed. I'm six months into my job as a first officer with a regional airline. Totally relishing this stage of my journey to the majors, reserve duty and all. I'm looking for guidance to navigate mountainous student debt on regionals first officer income. Do you know if there are any credible aviation affiliated individuals or organizations offering this type of service? Keep up the good work. Well, I will say this uh, keep a positive attitude. Uh, your first year at a regional airline, uh, you're not making much money, and this mountain of debt, you, you really can't move that easily. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be overly concerned about it, except for the fact that you need to really, really budget. I'm not sure I really enjoy the model that they put together in the airlines, where they starve you for the first year and then you move on. Uh, it's almost like they want to see if you're gonna you're gonna break if if you can make it through that first year. But uh, as far as advice uh, monetarily, I think there's some some really good things out there uh, and some great places to go towards. Because I don't do a lot of of this as far as, as debt consolidation. I talked to a lot of people about it, uh, but I would say, you know, there's there's some great, great folks out there, and we'll have some links out there to them. One of them is, uh, uh, oh, it's a gentleman, has a radio show, and he also has a podcast about money. And uh, who am I thinking of? Someone help me out here. Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey has a wonderful show, uh, and he has some great ideas. So if you're really into debt, and it's it's student loan debt, it's not a bad kind of debt. I, I know uh, you've heard that from Susie Orman also. Uh, I'm a big believer in, in using debt to move forward. Uh, just make sure that uh, that now you, you pay that down. Boy, some of those loans can be really, really tremendous. Tom, uh, what, any suggestions other than those two? I just mentioned Susie Orman, Dave Ramsey. Boy, uh, no, no, and and I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's uh, it's attitude right now. You know, just get through it and uh, keep your head above water, and it'll be worth it. Yeah, yeah, and believe me, it's tough, dude. I, I tell you, I I put myself way into debt uh, my first year, and I was like, "Holy smokes!" Uh, have a reserve fund. Uh, don't do this thing that I did that was so stupid. I I decided, oh, I'm gonna pay off everything and have no reserve fund. And once you know it, I went into debt because of that. Uh, and I had all of a sudden the car breaks down. I have a medical issue, and then you go from there. And I forget. I think I had something with an animal that I had a pet. So, uh, and you, it can happen very, very quickly. Uh, Eric, any, any uh, advice there? I mean, in terms of debt consolidation services, I, d- I don't have any personal experience with that. My, and I have a ton of students who are, you know, headed in the same path that this person's talking about. And it's just a reality. If you want to fund your flight training and you don't have all that money in your couch cushions, you got to go get it from somewhere. 
Um, and I'm not suggesting you go kill your uncle, so don't do that. Um, but, uh, you know, and when you take out loans, yeah, there, there's an issue there. You know, you're going to have to pay those back. They're, they're loans. Um, however, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, and this is, this is a silly story, but uh, if anything, maybe it'll give you some solace. When I was in college, um, you know, my parents were, were smart when I was growing up, and, and they put some money back. Uh, which is good because I picked the most expensive thing other than being a doctor or a lawyer that you can possibly do in college. Um, and, um, and and so I, I used that, uh, that money to, to help me pay for my flight training expenses in college. Uh, my now wife um, took out student loans and everything and, and helped. Um, and I mean, had some money set back too, but took out some loans to pay for some of the training and everything. And um, it was funny. <laughs> I went to get a cell phone. And uh, they were like, I'm sorry, we, we can't, uh, we can't give you a cell phone. I'm like, why? They're like, well, you don't have any debt. You don't have any. Well, you don't have any credit, which means you don't have any debt. And um, so, well, that's not fair. And the next day, um, my my now wife gets this offer in the mail for a ten thousand dollar credit limit on a credit card. I'm like, <laughs> really, really? Is that how this is? Um, and I and I say that because when we when we bought our first house, we bought our first house on her credit score. Because she's the one who had, she had a good credit score, um, and and I, I I lead with that to say, find a way to pay your your loan debt, um, keep your loans current. If you do, it will do a lot for you in terms of boosting your credit score, which can help you when you start looking at debt consolidation services. Um, and I've talked to um, numerous people who took their student loan debt and actually. Uh, paid a portion of it off with, uh, a, I know this sounds crazy, with a credit card with a 0% interest rate for a certain period of time. They did that based on, again, doing the math and being smart and creating a spending plan so that they could pay the money off of the credit card at 0% interest, or that portion of the debt, and they actually saved money in the long run while, again, boosting their credit score. So, there are some creative solutions out there. Again, I can't really recommend any because I didn't try any, but I can tell you that having student loan debt is not the worst thing in the world. Hmm. That's a good point. That is a great point. Well, awesome. Hopefully that's going to help you a little bit, all those those ideas we've given you. Maybe we'll put some of those links in the in the show notes. But thank, thanks, Eric and Tom. Those are some good things. So don't be discouraged. Keep moving forward. And someday you'll be able to get rid of all that debt. Uh, believe me, that's uh, that that is not heard of when you when you get to the majors. Most people have paid off their debt now. They're now they're having to pay for college is is what normally is happening. <laughs> well, anyway, the next one is an interesting story. It it's, comes in the, from somebody who talks about being a lone time pilot in the IFR environment. Uh, it's a little long, but I, I want to read this. It's a really good story. It says, "Hi, Carl. I found your podcast about two weeks ago, and I have to say I love it. I have about an hour and fifteen minutes one direction commute." four days a week to my job as a medevac dispatcher, and nothing passes the time by better than listening to other pilots on all ends of their hunt for a career in aviation talk about their successes and downfalls. Well, awesome. This one will actually help you a lot because it's pretty long. <laughs> I'm 24 years old and about uh, 550 hours total time, hold a commercial license, multi-engine IFR Group 1 certificate and Class 3 flight instructor certificate, and also a recent graduate from a two-year diploma program as an avionics technician. I'm happily married with two kids and just started to hit my stride in my career as a commercial aviator. Uh, this person obviously uh, works in another country, uh, in Canada, as a matter of fact. Uh, I have just finished my listening to your podcast on the importance of networking and the possibilities it may open up for you. And I have a story I wanted to tell as a prime example that happened to me 
as well as a question. I originally started out my career as an instructor, but very limited hours due to the current job I have as a dispatcher. I decided to look more for income by going into, uh, for an interview. I was offered as an apprentice aircraft maintenance engineer. I was offered a full-time position, but offered an income of only about half the income I'm making now. I respectfully declined the offer because of the huge pay cut I'd be taking, but then was asked how much multi-time I had. Turns out that a Cessna 340 he had a bunch of work on to do was also in need of some pilots uh, to spell off some of the existing near-retirement age pilots whenever they left for the summer for vacation. I forwarded my resume to the gentleman I had the interview with, when, who then forwarded it to the chief pilot, and within three days, I was offered a captain's seat logging multi-engine PIC time in an environment I otherwise wouldn't have experienced for the next couple of years. I'm now needing to fly into non-forecast icing conditions, actual AMC, and otherwise non-VFR flying. The challenge is absolutely amazing. I've even had the opportunity to fly a Yak-52 because of the people I've met working with the company. Also, due to my medevac experience, I've grown to know a lot of people by a first-name basis, including chief pilots and FOs, and just recently had an hour-and-a-half-long interview with the chief pilot of a company and had hinted about some movement that will be happening soon within the company, and he'll keep in touch. This kind of work may either involve flying right seat in a King Air 200 or a jet stream, either from medevac or corporate. However, I still am not able to fly as much recently because of the winter season and the fact we are no longer able to fly in the known icing conditions with a 340. I've been doing so much research and studying as I can in the meantime to keep up my skills. However, I feel that after a year, flying the aircraft is a bit of a culture shock to me compared to the regular 152s and 172s I'd previously been flying. I feel slightly behind the aircraft a bit at times, and I'm struggling a bit with the small but important things. I feel as if I can still routinely fly the aircraft safely, but it's because of that I have requested to fly with a chief pilot more on trips so I can get more practice and continue to learn and grow as a new IFR pilot. However, I can't help but feel slightly discouraged in my level of proficiency, even though I know it's a completely different world of flying compared to the instructing worlds. Is there any words of advice you can give and provide a excuse me, any words of advice you can provide to a low time pilot entering into the deep waters of flying IFR? What can I do further my goals as a commercial pilot? And did you ever hop into an aircraft where you simply felt too green to be flying? Keep up the fantastic work on the podcast. There are many pilots, including me, around the world that you reach out through them and have provided some very important and uplifting insight to the wonders of aviation. I keep looking forward to your next podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. That was an awesome story. Uh, as far as the IFR is concerned, man, I, I tell you, it's what you're doing was, is perfect. You know, Ask somebody, hey, can you help me out? Jump into a simulator if you can find one and, and try to do as much IFR flying as you can. Of course, real-world flying is, is very important because you learn how to use the system. But I think uh, when you alluded to the networking, I think that was an episode I did with Tom, and, and I'm glad that that's really, really helped you. And, and Tom, I, I'm sure you felt some encouragement from this gentleman's story. Yeah, that's awesome. That's excellent. <laughs> but as far as IFR flying, I've, I've felt behind the, the power curve. As a matter of fact, I find... I'm behind the power curve a little bit when I'm not flying IFR after a week. You know, I'm at that point where I do so much IFR flying that, 
you know, I feel like I'm just a little bit behind. It's it's uh, if I go a month to two months, I I feel a little worse. If I go six months, there's no way I'm jumping in a simulator, and I'm, I want someone to to show me what I'm doing. I you know that never happens really. Uh, hasn't happened to me in years, but it, it, I I feel the pain, and that's one of those skills that dramatically decreases over time. Uh, so you need to you, you, there's everybody else out feels the same pain you do with the IFR. It's not like flying VFR and, and riding a bike. It's it's really a skill that may, must be honed, and it's like a saw that has to constantly be sharpened. Eric, what do you think? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, uh, my students laugh at me because I, I, and I freely tell people, you know, my personal minimums in, IF, in the IFR environment are ridiculously high right now. You know, I won't fly and weather below a thousand feet. Um, just I'm just not I'm not proficient enough, and I know that, and I'm honest with myself, and I'm not going to put myself in a risky situation. Now, that being the case, if I had the time that I really wish I had to jump in a simulator, it's rough. There's airplanes on the ramp and simulators in the sim lab, but <laughs> you would think that I would I would have time to keep myself <laughs> instrument proficient. Sadly, I do not. Um, but uh, you know that that kind of thing. I, I do actually let our double I applicants practice on me, though, which is fun. Um, they really enjoy that because I am rusty, and it's a really good experience because um, you know a lot of that instruction you're going to provide are going to be to people who are certified who have the instrument rating but are rusty. And so I think that the process you're going through right now is incredibly useful because you're going to use this as you instruct, and hopefully you will continue to instruct throughout your career. And provide this as one of those useful learning experiences that you'll be able to provide to instrument students uh, later on through your career. But I think the key there, uh, like Carl said, um, is just constant immersion in the instrument environment. It's not like you know takeoff and landings. You know you've done so many of those. You know I can jump in various small aircraft and do takeoff and landing work in the traffic pattern and it not be an issue. Now at the same time, would I take this airplane and jump into the instrument system? Well, probably not. Um, you know, and it's one of those skills that um, I don't want to say it's harder or easier than learning to land an airplane. I don't want to get into that debate, but I will say that it's one of the skills that degrades the fastest. Uh, your instrument skills just don't—they don't stick around as long as your basic piloting skills do. And I think mainly that's because basic pilot skills are muscle memory. You learn, I do this with my hands, the airplane does this. Where in the instrument world, it's so much brain power. It's so much in your head. It's cerebral. It's being 30 minutes ahead of the airplane all the time. And if you're rusty, if you haven't been in that environment, yeah, you're going to be behind the airplane. And I know I feel that even in a 172 barely moving. You know, I wouldn't want to even attempt to jump in some of the stuff that Tom and Carl fly and try to get in the instrument environment. I'd probably run through a mountain. So, I think it, the first step, which you've obviously got knocked down, is coming to terms with that and understanding your limitations. And that's a great thing. A lot of people don't get that. So kudos to you on that one. And the second thing is exactly what you've done also, which is go and seek help if that's a more experienced pilot, a simulator. And I know this sounds crazy, but you know, a simple joystick in Microsoft Flight Simulator and just shoot approaches, get in the system. Um, watch YouTube videos. I mean, there's a number of things you can do, and I'm telling you this not as instructor Eric, but as instrument pilot Eric, who is rusty, and this is what I do. Um, so it, it works for me, um, and I, I hope it can work for you too. But you know, kudos to where you are in your journey. I think that's so cool, and I envy you so much with the Yak and also with the King Air, which is my favorite airplane in the whole world. So congratulations on what you're doing, and keep up the great work. 
Awesome. You know, keeping that those IFR skills fresh uh, is not just, you know, Eric, you mentioned the airplanes we fly. What's well, any airplane that you fly? You know, today I was in a G1000 aircraft flying IFR, and I've never done it before. That was the first time ever I've flown a G1000 in actual IFR other than the simulator. And uh, I was all thumbs. You know, I there were certain things I could do, but realized there are so many other things I need to learn. And, and I had, you know, an under 200-hour pilot showing me how to do all this stuff, which is hmm. awesome. I mean, So what you're saying is the simulator instruction I provided to you was not adequate. <laughs> that you're, you're calling my instruction into question, Carl? Is that what's happening here? It was, it was another instructor that did my, my, my G1000. <laughs> I, I would never say, and he did a wonderful job. I, I hope he, he's listening probably. And, and, and it, was, it was an outstanding job. It's just that there were so many more things that we just didn't get a chance to go over. So. Uh, don't, I don't want to make him feel bad. That's for sure. <laughs> but yes, you can. It, it's it's still different than when you're in the real airplane. That's for sure. And you're mm -hmm. talking to approach, and you're trying to dodge clouds, and they're like, "Are you IFR? Are you a VFR?" It's like, "Oh, uh oh, did you want me to stay VFR?" <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that was that was quite interesting to watch me fumble like that. But moving on, right along, I think that's awesome. His journey. Hey, Carl, can I add something yeah, well, to that? Please do. Uh, you know, I think you guys covered, I think, everything really well, and uh, he, he is in a good place. I'll tell you something that worked really good for me. I still do this today uh, after almost every flight, not every flight, but after almost every flight, and that is to take some notes and write down some takeaways from the flight. So, you know, this gentleman goes out and does a leg from A to B, and, and he's, you know, having to fly a, a departure procedure, and he's up in the clouds the whole time, and he's shooting an approach down. I can guarantee you, because all of us talking right now, this happens to us, you learned something, even if you've done it a thousand times. So when you get down on the ground and you settle down, you grab a cup of coffee and write down one or two or three takeaways, those will stick with you and accelerate your confidence and your abilities. You know, that, that's a great idea. And, Tom, I did that today. I actually wrote on my pad, get the G1000 book from Max Trescott and read the darn thing. And, and that's a great takeaway. Uh, just, and think about that. I mean, that's, that's an awesome, awesome idea. Uh, so good, good advice, Tom. Great advice. Great stuff. I, I'm learning stuff here. This is cool. Um, anyway, moving right along. Thanks for the input, Tom. And sorry I missed you there before. No, it's all good. Um, the, uh, the next one is coming from uh, another listener that uh, we're moving down the list here fairly quickly. You might have another 15, 20 minutes. I'm going to try to get through these. Uh, it says, hello, Carl. I truly enjoy your show, and I can honestly say it helped to solidify my decision to switch majors and schools and pursue my aviation career goals, which I've dreamt about since I was a kid. However, one thing keeps coming to mind when I think about my long-term future in the aviation industry. Though one can really see the future, what effect do you think unmanned aerial vehicles will have on the aviation industry as a whole? Will it pit me out of a job in 20 years and replace my computer systems or some pilot in a ground station? I don't, I don't think we're looking at that in 20 years. It's going to be a lot longer than that. Uh, but uh, he continues, possibly one of your guests could lend some insight into my question as well. It just worries me that I'll spend all this time, money, and effort, which, don't get me wrong, I love it, Becoming a pilot only to be undercut by a cheaper-to-operate unmanned system halfway through my career. Will the airlines and other airplanes of the future be pilotless? Maybe you or your guests can lend some listeners and myself some insights and help calm my nerves about the future in aviation. Thanks for everything you do. You're a very inspiring asset to young pilots and all those looking to join the aviation industry. A very appreciative listener. Thank you. Thank you. I do not think that the airliners will, the airlines will replace the pilots in the airplane because they do much more than just actually fly the airplane 
they make many many more decisions uh, as far as some of those applications where it's a very dangerous situation we're already seeing those people being replaced look at some of the drones in the military uh, we're seeing those we talked a little bit about ag flying there's some possibilities there but when you have a whole bunch of passengers um, the computer can't decide whether you have a non-responsive passenger who stopped breathing and you're 250 miles out over the ocean, which way you should go, continue on or turn around. Uh, they can't make certain decisions about schedules. There's, the, the world is so dynamic and there's so many things that can go wrong. And then what happens when the computer fails? Then you need someone to interject. Uh, and we've seen that uh, happen quite a bit. Look at Air France. I mean, if, if the, the human interaction was maybe different, uh, there could have been a different outcome. So I think that's very important to, to think about. What do you guys think as far as the, the airlines and, and, and being pilotless in 20 years? I, you know, I, I might eat my words here, but I am not getting on an airplane that doesn't have some people up front. <laughs> and, and you know what? The people that I fly are not getting on an airplane that doesn't have some people up front. So, you know, maybe that's a, 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 uh, you know, a, a perception of our times. And in 50 years, somebody will dig that statement up and say, you were crazy. You didn't know what you're talking about. But I bet you if you surveyed folks, like you said, Carl, it's not happening anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think so. Although there, there's a lot of applications for drones, don't get me wrong. And there's, there's a whole new industry. But I think it's additive, not subtracting from it. Yeah. What yeah. do you think, Eric? Yeah, I, I don't see it in, in my lifetime for sure. Um, you know, I think if you look at the last hundred and so odd years of aviation and all the things we've accomplished from flying for the first time to landing on the moon and every imaginable thing that we've been able to accomplish with the power of aviation, it's always involved a pilot. Um, no matter what changed, what technology changed, how the aircraft changed, whether we were flying in space or whether we were flying in the atmosphere, there was always a pilot. Now, again, like Tom, somebody may dig this up and throw it in my face a few years from now, <laughs> but I just, I can't fathom 200 people jumping on an airplane, you know, with the, um, <laughs> the little, the robot standing there saying, hello, welcome aboard. You know, it's just <laughs> not, it's not, I mean, how is that a thing? Um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe we get to that point. At this, at the stage we're at, um, you know, automation has done so much in the flight deck, and that goes all the way back into general aviation. Carl, you're talking about a G1000, which is more sophisticated than some of the airliners that are flying around today. Um, you know, and it's, automation and technology has done so much in the cockpit, I think, and that's great, and, and it can be a real aid to human component in aviation. But we have also seen the automation has also been a big detractor in basic piloting skills. It's been, um, it's almost been a hurdle we've jumped over in maintaining situational awareness and workload management because there are these extra things we have to do in the cockpit. So in terms of replacing the pilot, no, no, I, I don't see that happening. Not with, not with, you know, the, what we know about automation now, um, you know, and, you know, 10 years from now when the first artificial intelligence system is created, everybody will point and laugh at me, but, for right now, I just I can't fathom how that would happen. Now, and my proof is that look at Captain Kirk. You know, he's still around. They were flying, you know, <laughs> the Enterprise around space. So that's proof right there. You always need a chain of command, uh, no matter what you're doing. You will definitely always need some type of chain of command. Good and, point. And even in a, in a business or whatever, uh, a good example is uh, you know my dad was in the medical field, and now they have robots that are able to do certain surgeries. Uh, but the uh, the doctor, and thankfully, is is right there. Uh, just in case something happens, and also to direct the robots. So uh, there are surgeries that you don't, uh, any surgery, I want a doctor there. 
you know, definitely want the person there. Uh, but anyway, great, great question. Uh, I'm not worried about the drones, uh, and I'm not worried about pilotless aircraft now. And uh, but in certain applications, you you might be, especially in certain military applications. Moving on to our next one, we, I, I tell you what, we're going to keep going for another 15 minutes. Let's I, do it. I said we're we're going to keep moving and and try to get as much done as we can. Uh, this is this is some awesome questions. I, I love this. I love answering these questions. Um, next one's a career change uh, message. Says hello, Carl. I recently discovered Stuck Mike Avcast and the Aviation Careers Podcast, and have been listening to any chance I get. By the way, if you don't listen to Stuck Mike Avcast, that's our general aviation podcast about living to fly, learning to fly, and loving to fly. Uh, it's uh, some technical stuff, but it's more more fun. It's not so much about careers. Uh, but anyway. Moving on. The Aviation Careers Podcast, in particular, is extremely helpful in my current professional circumstances, so thank you for what you're doing. You and I are quite similar, actually. I have a master's degree in Internet Systems, web program, and I've uh, been in digital marketing industry for 10 years, but it's time for a change. Ever since I was about 12, I've wanted to be an airline pilot. I sold my 16th birthday, earned my private pilot certificate at age 17, and I still love flying today. Just signed off on my tailwheel endorsement. That's awesome. In high school, I eventually planned on being an engineer. Unfortunately, life happened. I got into business school, and because my employer paid for it, got married, had a few children, and my career remained in marketing. It was a simple thing to do. The money was better than ever imagined, and it was provided us with a great standard of living for 10 years. However, more now than ever, I want to work in aviation. I don't care about pay cuts and paying my dues. My dream job is to work for a contractor like Northrop, Locking, Boeing, etc., Preferably in defense, but commercial would be good too. So I'm currently back in school about a year and a half through my aerospace engineering program. Uh, my concentration's in aeronautics. This is where my questions enter the scene. I want to be involved in operations, unmanned systems, fighters, flight testing, etc. Rather than being an engineer who sits on a computer all day, I do that now, or a guy turning wrenches. These positions require a unique skill set. So my current thought is this. I need some operational experience, perhaps earn all the rating certificates and become an airline pilot for a few years, internships at a few related companies, or try to become a UAV pilot, etc. Unfortunately, since I'm 31 years old, being a military pilot is out of the question. You think I'm on the right track here, but this varied experience really helped me get a career I want, or does it look like I'm, going, I'm good at a lot of things and an expert at none? Any advice is greatly appreciated. Well, thanks. I think that, that was awesome. Um, as far as engineering, uh, we did have a flight test engineer uh, that was on the program, and he is not a pilot, uh, and but absolutely is very much involved. I saw him at the NBAA recently, and uh, let's see, I forgot, I can't mention the company he works for, but uh, they had a huge display, and they were uh, design testing a brand new airplane, and they were very excited about rolling out this new product. It was really, really cool. Uh, also had a test pilot on here, and a lot of test pilots are also engineers. Uh, so, yeah, having a lot of different uh, things in your background is great, but I still think you need to focus on, on moving for forward towards your, your career goal. Make sure that doesn't get uh, in the way. What do you think, uh, Tom? You know, I think uh, I think you're right, and I would I would maybe say this to him is, you know, put yourself in the seat of someone who's hiring for your dream position. And what would you want? What would you want them to bring? Would you want them to bring, you know, eight different companies, 14 different projects over 10 years? Or would you want them to be very focused on the position that you're hiring for? Whatever, whatever it might be in, in that kind of specific test pilot engineer support world. 
Um, and, and maybe that would bring some clarity. I, I do agree with you, Carl. I'm not so much sold that having a, you know, a little bit of experience in all these different things, as he says, and, and being an expert at none is the way to go. I, I don't think that's maybe the best way. But uh, you know, turn the tables. And what would you want? And then uh, go after that and bring that to the guy who actually does hire you one day. Awesome. Eric, do you have any comments? Yeah, I just it's it's funny. One of my faculty members actually is in the exact same spot you are. Um, he's his background is in or his degree rather is in aeronautical engineering, um, and um, his current work task is in unmanned aircraft. He's a uh, civilian contractor for Department of Defense, um, and was on the design team for the Predator, um, and so has the hands-on experience like what you're talking about. Um, and he also went through the Navy's test pilot school. Um, and I just bring that up because what you're talking about is actually definitely an attainable thing. And his advice to you, I don't want to speak for him, but having had this conversation with him, I feel pretty comfortable about what he would say. It's the same thing that Tom said. It is an extremely competitive field, and it's also an extremely niche field. Um, the best thing you can do is focus, hone in, and go as deep as humanly possible in that particular arena. Um, that's what, you know, find you know, ways to get involved in contracting. If you're, and it looks like you are um, at a major university, you have the opportunity to participate in research programs, grant-funded issues where you're looking at possibly unmanned aircraft or find the thing that gets you the connections that gets you, but stay, stay in that path. Um, in that particular field, um, a lot of jumping around looks like instability. When it, that's not what you're trying to do, you want a varied background. And there are some fields where a varied background is like gold. But in that particular industry, because it's so niche oriented, um, one of the big things he advises students on every day is, you know, figure out your way in to that field and stay very focused within it because it's it's so dynamic and so changing. You, you really can't dabble at it or come at it and come back to it. You really have to stay involved to be competitive in it. And, and you know what, one, add one more thing, too, to what you're saying there, Eric. Uh, I know the listeners can't see this, but we can see where he, he goes to school, and I'm very familiar with that city. There's a giant aviation uh, company there who does all the things he's talking about. So reach out to them. There's got to be some mentors and some people there with experience to kind of help him along this path. And, and that, I think, would be priceless. Your internship opportunities, things like that. I mean, really pursue yeah. it. You, you've got um, you've got a lot of opportunities just geolocated where you are. Yeah. So exactly. absolutely take advantage of those. Awesome, great advice, guys. Appreciate that. So you've got something to think about now, so and move forward with that. Uh, I think you're, I think you're on the right track as far as your attitude and your willingness to work. So uh, and trust me, you'll enjoy it. And it is a tough thing to 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 step back and take a career that doesn't make much money but i'm loving it i mean i, I absolutely it took me a while uh but actually really really enjoying it took a real big step back money wise but uh now making good money and also enjoying life although i don't just sit on the beach all the time like some people think i can change <laughs> my facebook posts uh to something like a snow well, if you posted pictures of you ever working then we would agree that maybe you had a job we just you just look a beach bum to us but that's when i'm at work <laughs> So how am I going to do that? You know, it's like, look, I show pictures of me eating my sandwich in the cockpit. I mean, come on, <laughs> I'll have the fish. <laughs> but, but, but kidding aside, I, I love my job. It's really cool. I get to fly. 
I can actually fly a lot if I want to do uh, you know up to three legs a day. It's kind of hard in the Airbus to do more than three legs a day, or I could go to the 190 and do more. Uh, and then times I just want to go really far and fly a six-hour flight, uh, I can do that. I want to. I love the Caribbean, so I I bid all Caribbean flights, and I'm exploring the different islands. And this this week is St. Thomas, you know, and the other week it was St. Martin, and you know those those kind of things. And I never. Aruba a couple of weeks before that, you know, it's all these really neat places that I would never see, but I get paid to go and see those. So that's a wonderful thing. So just think about that. Somebody has to do it, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to get up early in the morning, and sometimes I fly all night, too. So it's, it's not all cookies and cream. I'm just not winning this conversation. It's really difficult for me to listen to you complain about your job, so don't even try. It's 23 now. degrees here right now. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, moving right along to some really tough questions here. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it is. there are times when it, it is tough. It's just uh, those are the times you take off and, uh, and take some time to relax. When you do three red eyes in a row, that's, that's when mm-hmm. life gets tough. But for the most part, it's a wonderful job. And sometimes I really don't feel like I'm working some days. Um, but anyway, moving right along, we have a comment from somebody via LinkedIn. Uh, it says, Carl, I really enjoyed your podcast. And I'm in the process of switching from the military to a civilian career, your program has specifically helped me research aviation jobs beyond the airlines. Thanks. Well, you're, you're more than welcome. There are so many more jobs out there besides the airlines. I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to the airlines. I actually really like it. I totally was not going to do the airlines. And I did it. I tried it, and I liked it. And I said, "Yeah, I'm staying. I, I really enjoy this." And uh, you know, so I'm I'm hoping you'll find the, the career path that you want. Um, and also, as far as the military aviation, I've helped a lot of folks in military aviation, but we also have some other folks that are beyond uh, that talk talk military speak that are gonna gonna be able to help you a little bit in your, your transition. So we definitely have some of those there. Uh, moving on to the next question, uh, it says, "Hi, Carl." I discovered your show after stumbling onto Stuck My Cabcast a couple of months ago. Since then, I've been going through back episodes of both and thoroughly enjoy them. My background is I'm turning 50 this year. I've had my private pilot certificate since 1987. I learned to fly through an Air Force Aero Club while stationed on Okinawa, Japan. Pretty cool. Doing all my primary training on a tiny island in the Pacific Ocean was an interesting and enjoyable experience, to say the least. It's challenging to plan any cross-country when it means flying to another, even smaller, island. This was pre-GPS, so it was all VOR and ADF navigation with little room for error. In the last 30 years, I've only logged about 150 hours. Life and lack of money always have gotten away. At least that was my excuse. Fifteen years ago, in an attempt to get current again, I got my seaplane rating. Pretty cool stuff. My flying has still been sporadic, to say the least, though. I know that flying is what I want to do for a living. I never really wanted to be an airline pilot, but your podcast has really opened my eyes as to all the different opportunities out there to earn a living flying. One area of flying that's always held a special place in my heart is rotorcraft. Ever since that first 15-minute flight at a local fairground in a jet ranger, I've had the desire to fly helicopters. I've heard that helicopter pilots are facing their own shortage soon as more and more Vietnam-era pilots retire. The problem is, is staggering costs to earn your ratings. I can do the transition training as little as 35 hours for my private pilot, but the commercial still is a daunting task and will cost well over $200 an hour to rent a Robinson. On the other hand, it seems to me that I should be able to get my fixed-wing commercial with instrument for ten to 15000 once there's just a matter to find the job towing banners or something else to get my daily fixed flying. 
What I believe I really want to do is teach. I've taught a number of adult education courses and other training courses on computers over the years and enjoy it. I know you talk about it's possible to earn a good living as a CFI, which is encouraging. I have two questions. First, what are the good resources for actually finding those banner towing and other entry-level flying jobs? I've looked around those big job boards and occasionally come across postings, but not very often. More times than not, there are listings for the National Guard. Second, is in regards to working as a CFI, I see a lot of flight schools looking for CFIs and think I would be attracted to some as I'm looking for something more permanent and not just building time. I see ads saying things like 20 hours, uh, $20 an hour. However, I, I have to assume that is instructing time only. $20 an hour sounds close to what I earn now, but I currently work 55 to 60 hours a week, and I know that's unrealistic for a CFI. You've mentioned between 10 to 1500 hours a year, which is 20 to 30,000. That would be fine if I was just building time to a lucrative airline, but not long term. Plus, if I took a job like that and was only getting 10 to 20 hours a week, I couldn't even live on that. Uh, there is one company that I'm interested in because of the type of training they do that requires 500 hours of dual given, prefer experience in large 141 school first. They actually state it's scheduled an 8 hour workday and occasionally Saturdays. This sounds exactly what I'm looking for. So I just get started. I think. That's the best way to get experience in a large 141 school is to attend one that offers their graduates jobs after training. The drawback is the larger school seems to cost a premium because they cater to those with eyes on the airlines and six-figure incomes. To demonstrate my level of commitment, I will say that I just sold my Harley. Oh, boy. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. I've actually cut my expenses as much as I can in order to get moving on this. I turned 50 in December. I want to be working as a commercial pilot before then. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks. That's an awesome... Uh, really awesome question. A lot of good stuff here. First of all, let's back up as far as making money as a flight instructor. When I said 1,000 to 1,500 hours a year, uh, that was flying time. Uh, but you have to also put into the 500 hours or so extra to that uh, that you're making as actual ground instructing, etc., and simulator instructing. There's a lot more than just flight instructing. So, yes, you can you can do a lot better than those numbers uh, that I put out there and actually that that amount that you showed I was making more than that making less per hour so yes uh, you definitely can make more than than the, the 20 to 30 but you have to be in an area where you're doing a lot of flying a part 141 school can be good but it can also be bad because sometimes they only pay their people uh, you know small amounts of money because they know they're moving on to the airlines uh, so that's something to think about there Erica, what do you think as far as making money as a as a CFI? Oh man, that's a that's a whole podcast series in and of itself. Um, but uh, no, I mean it's certainly possible. Again, and I've I've told this story on this podcast before. Um, I made a very good living as a career instructor, and when I was doing corporate and some Part ninety one uh, private stuff mixed in with the instruction, you know, I was always busy. I was fly I flew as much as I wanted to. I, I turned people away. Um, in a high volume market, um, you know, and did, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not bragging or throwing things around, but, but did well over 60, um, you know, and, and it can be done. I think one of the, the big things you're looking for when you're looking at career flight instruction, the market that you're in plays a huge part, but then also what's your angle? What's your, what's your niche? Because if you just teach people to fly, well, there are a lot of people who do that. Um, I was in a market that did not have G1000 experience. So I was the G1000 guy. And everybody came to me with their G1000 aircraft. Um, 
and and that's extremely lucrative when you're the guy um you know when you're the person people go to and then they recommend to their friends and so on and so forth and it is very word of mouth um but and i will say coming coming from the large 141 environment and working in that every day now <laughs> i can tell you while those environments will definitely get you more flight time you know per annum as it were you really have to be careful in environments like that to avoid burnout and i see this a lot where you're flying so much and you're doing the same lesson you know four times a day and and i watch instructors just get burned out um and i i don't it makes me sad to see that and there are certainly different ways to avoid that and, and and you know the diversity of the students that you have and working with the school administration to make sure that you have a diverse student background so that you're not just doing the same thing all day every day um you know to to keep the keep the juices flowing as it were um but uh, you know whether you're in a in a high volume market and you have a special niche that you serve or whether you're at a large volume 141 school you can absolutely make a career as an instructor um I did I know Carl did. Um, it, it is certainly possible. Uh, it just it depends on. It's like anything else. It's it does rely on your business sense. You can't just show up at the airport as an instructor and okay, well here I am. Where are the students? You know, it, if you're going to do that, it takes a little bit of business sense, good marketing skills, um, and you really have to understand the business that is flight instruction. But absolutely possible, and in my personal opinion, one of the absolute most rewarding careers you can ever have. That's some good advice, and I like the fact that you mentioned you know have a niche. You know, have uh, it's always good. Uh, you know, I had certain niches where I would do non-flyers guide to the cockpit, and boy, I got so many people that came to me and had their spouses and friends go fly with me. Instrument flying, instrument flying courses, teaching certain specific things that uh, people have a lot of difficulty with. I think that's good. Uh, understanding certain concepts like how to use a constant speed propeller. Uh, taught a lot of courses on that, that type of thing. It's always, it's always good to have that, that little niche, no matter what you do in instructing, and, and that'll actually add to your income. Become a master CFI. That's another thing. You can look into that. Uh, so I, I think that's really important. Tom, do you have anything to add to that before we move you know, on? You know, yeah, I think it just goes back to, and, and maybe this would apply to all the questions that we've answered tonight. I know we've got one more, but you know, really is to think about what's the goal. You know, is his goal to be a CFI? Is his goal to just be in aviation? Is his goal to be what is it? And I think that'll help him not only, you know, he talked earlier about, you know, where do I, what are the resources for finding these jobs? When you have that clear goal, it's easier to know where to go to find these jobs, but it's also easier to know what you need to do or obtain or get certified in or not get certified in, in order to do what you want to do. So I think, you know, this question really, especially in all the questions today is just have that clarity on what the goal is and it'll make all the decisions easier and the path shorter awesome advice awesome advice um i think that's a it's important for for people to to shorten that path and and knowing their goal well that that can do it right there uh but anyway moving on we have one more question uh came in about uh military transition uh he says i just heard over the podcast that you'll be doing a future episode on military pilots transitioning to civil flying jobs I'd like you to include information for those that are helicopter pilots, uh, UH-60, Blackhawks, uh, transitioning to fixed-wing jobs. I already have a private pilot's license and have a school lined up to use my GI Bill benefits to get Part 141 fixed-wing ratings. 
I'll be leaving the Army in six months and looking to make a fast transition. By the time I get out of the Army, I will be around 1,400 total time, 500 PIC, 90 fixed wing, 300 hours night vision goggles, plus 35 night unaided, uh, 800 cross-country. Any advice would be appreciated. Thank you for what you do. My, my advice is simple. Get as many uh, uh, airplane hours as you can. I've uh, you know worked with a lot of folks coming out as helicopter pilots. Helicopter pilots, when you're on a resume, it looks great. It, it's uh, we know you can fly, etc. But you still need to have that fixed fixed wing uh, time in there, and uh, and that's really important. Also, to have your multi-engine ATP once you're flying. I'm assuming wanting to go to the airlines or to any job, get as much as you can. And I think you're on the right track. Sounds like you're pretty much accelerated. Any uh, advice from you guys? You know, I I don't may not have any advice, but I could say that uh, that that you you can be successful doing this. I just recently flew with a gentleman who spent a good portion of his career in the Coast Guard flying rotor wing, and we were flying in a uh, in a in a business jet fixed wing aircraft uh, recently. So you can get there, no doubt. Awesome, Eric. I I think you've got the nail on the head there, Carl. It's about um, it's about lowering your shoulder and pushing. You know, I see this a, a lot. People who are looking to um, come out of rotorcraft into fixed wing, or the other way around, and it doesn't matter which direction you're going. By the way, it's the same answer. Um, when you're going from one category to the other, the key—and I know it sounds simplistic—but you need as many hours in that category and class as humanly possible. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. Of course, getting you know, adding your ratings and everything, and doing that—that that, that will certainly contribute. But you know, finding those opportunities for those um, those hour accumulation jobs where you're working in aviation, but you're also being able to build time. Um, you know, your your banner towing, um, your skydiving, all, all those sorts types of operations. Um, those are those are big hour building type operations. So you know, just look for all the varied opportunities you've got in front of you. And you know, to yeah. add to that, if an airline looking to hire somebody who has a lot of uh, military experience, especially flying. Uh, there's a lot of challenges, especially for the single-seat fighter guys, the, the turboprop people, uh, the people that are flying helicopters, uh, when they do go into the airline training. And uh, the one thing that they find is a totally different environment. But the reason that the airlines specifically, and I'm sure there's a lot of other employers, like to hire the military is they know that the person has done something difficult, has been able to overcome those, that difficulty, and they have the tenacity to move forward, and uh, that's the one reason that a lot of people like to hire uh, military pilots. It's not because they have experience in the airline world, because they don't, and they struggle in the beginning, but they have the tenacity, they have the, the fortitude to move forward uh, in that career, and they're, they're able to adapt, and that's what they teach in the military, and that's what they do when they come to the airlines to adapt to the actual uh, the, the environment and the, the, the real-time environment of all these things going on. But uh, I think you're going to do wonderful. I, I can tell just by your email. Well, gosh, guys, that's it. That's the last question. Uh, that was awesome. This has been great. I think we went about a oh my gosh, an hour and uh, a little, an hour and uh, 39 minutes. I I tell you what though, we're going to try to put together some some shorter episodes. Uh, what I've been doing is we have a new system of collecting all the questions. I know it's been a challenge lately for me to get back to you on these questions, but. Uh, Russ, who helps me out a lot with the, with all the scholarships and also helps me getting back to people, will send you an email immediately whenever you get an email sent to me. Uh, and, of course, you can email me directly at feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com or just go to the contacts page at aviationcareerspodcast and send us a message. 
uh, don't worry about the spelling, we'll fix it, etc. Uh, and, and of course, if you just want to voice your opinion, uh, you want to answer or ask a question, uh, you can also uh, call our number, and that's Dip My Wings. Dip My Wings, just like you're flying, you dip your wings. Dip My Wings, that's 347-699-4647. And we will get back to you as quickly as possible, and then include it into a podcast. We may start doing a, a schedule uh, that's a little more frequent, but for now we've decided that uh, we need to get a little more consistency with this podcast, so we decided to go to an 8th and 22nd as release dates. Uh, we're definitely going to have those. Anything in between, we may have some special podcasts, just like we, we do with some of the other podcasts that we have. So the 8th and the 22nd. Uh, the reason we chose those dates is because we produce another one on the 1st and the 15th for Stuck Mike. Uh, but we definitely have a lot of material that we want to keep pushing out there. And don't forget, we're going to have more webinars now that I'm back in the uh, the video produ production again. We've got that wrapped up again. Uh, we also put out uh, the FA Safety Team. I've been putting out the topics of the month every month on my YouTube channel at Expert Aviator. It's youtube.com slash expertaviator. That stuff's all free. Uh, but we do have a membership option, obviously, uh, where you can actually uh, pay the $5 a month or 50 a year, and it gives you access to all the scholarships and some of the other courses that we have. Um, and the Pilot Jobs book, and that's also out there. A uh, couple things I want to mention, though, is that you know our friends here, Tom and Eric, have been incredibly helpful. And uh, But to be able to find them, uh, uh, Tom, you have a, an interesting podcast that's back online, and uh, being produced again. It's uh, the Private Jet Podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the Private Jet Podcast is is really geared towards the corporate side of aviation. And uh, I, what I say is it's conversations that reduce risk and increase value in business aviation. So we talk about things in there that are kind of all over the board from managing to insurance to uh, SMS and safety systems to, you know, which airplane do you buy, do you rent, do you own? So if anybody's interested in those types of topics on the corporate and the business aviation side, uh, that's what that podcast, the private jet podcast is all about. Okay. And they can contact you there by looking at the website, of course. Awesome. Yep. Contact information is there. Cool. And then the other one that I want to plug is uh, Polk State College and the Polk State Aerospace Program. And uh, Eric, how can they find that? And uh, again, remind us what you do there. Well, um, we're kind of, I guess, new kids on the block. Our program's been around for about two years now. Um, and this semester, we topped 300 enrolled students. Um, don't tell me there's not a demand in aviation, because there is. Um, and, and I get to see that every day. Um, we, uh, we just posted... Uh, just this uh, last this day, actually, we had the students soloed on Sunday. Uh, was we had a, a safety stand down on on Friday, and everybody was sort of giving him a hard time. You know, you need you, you know you need to solo. Why haven't you soloed yet? And and uh, then I got a picture Sunday afternoon that he had soloed. So he got uh, he took the challenge to heart. But we have some great students. We have great staff, great faculty, and um, and really interested in um, making aviation a, a, a good career field to go into one that's profitable and one that, um, one that's really efficient and safe. And, uh, that's, that's our focus, but you can find more about us online, uh, at our program website at polk, P-O-L-K dot E-D-U slash aerospace, all kinds of fun stuff there. Two associate degrees, one in professional pilot science, one in aerospace administration, and then currently the only public institution in the state of Florida to offer a bachelor's degree in aerospace science. So very excited about that. And I'm um, very excited about uh, watching these young men and women and actually some non-young men and women. We have a very diverse uh, pilot population, um, you know, achieve their aviation goals. So it's, uh, it's 
one of the most inspiring places I think you could ever want to work. <laughs> hey, Eric, let me ask you a question. Uh, Carl, do we have time for a quick question? Sure. What what are your uh, your pilot population there? Do most of them want to go in the airlines, or do they want to go into business aviation, or do they want to be uh, in management? What do you see as kind of maybe one or two, three directions that you, that everybody kind of chooses? Well, it's funny because you know if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. Um, one of the big things we do in our program, we don't really consider ourselves an airline track program. There are a lot of those out there. Um, and I, I grant you, most college graduates are going to find their way. You know, their 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 main career path is going into aviation. Um, research that University of North Dakota does, in partnership with other schools throughout the year, shows that about 82% of college students uh, want to go fly for the airlines. That's actually not the case in our program. Only about 25% of our students are actually airline bound or see themselves ending their career in the airlines. Um, some may go to the airlines for some period of time. I have a lot of students who are interested in corporate flying, um, medevac or mission aviation. Uh, it's, it's really spread all over the board. Um, I actually had a student who enrolled uh, not too long ago because his dad owns an aerial surveying company and he wants to get more hands-on in the operation. So he wants to come and get his degree in aviation and become a, a commercial pilot. So, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of everything. I, I can't say that it's as, as focused, even when I went to college, everybody was going to be an airline pilot. That's, <laughs> that's the only job we knew existed. Um, and I think we do a very good job in our program about um, exposing people to all the other fields that exist in aviation and not even just the pilot jobs, the administration careers, the technical careers, that sort of thing. I think it's important to, uh, to think outside the box. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I think you're right. And uh, you know this, what, Carl. The show that you do here, and uh, you know the work, Eric, that you do. I, I think our industry is severely undervaluing those efforts because you know, as, as we get older, and we are getting older, it's our responsibility to bring up the next generation. And so, you know, this show is great for that. And Eric, the work you do, and, and that's kind of where that question stems from, because uh, you know, it's time soon for us to be passing the torch, and uh, when that day comes, we need to be ready. So. Uh, you know, kudos to you guys for the show and the work there. It's uh, it's good stuff for the industry. Well, well thanks, Tom. And I, thanks, Tom. Some of us are going to be passing that torch a lot sooner than others. Uh, <laughs> See, I was going to say that. I didn't, I I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I decided not to bring it up, but thank you for saying it for me, Carl. If it makes you feel better, Carl, I, I have discovered some different colored oh, hair recently. <laughs> yes, oh, why, they're brown. <laughs> <laughs> I started Scary wondering stuff. where mine's going to. It, every day it runs away. <laughs> that's the, the poppy poppy I hear all the time from the kids, and uh, it, it's that's okay. I, I'm aging gracefully, and I, I'm enjoying it too. I'm just deciding that I'm going to get in better shape so I can keep flying because uh, I love to fly, and I want to keep doing that as much as possible. And you know, you you mentioned about the the students at Polk State College, Tom, and and the diverse backgrounds, and Eric just described them. Uh, they are actually pretty incredible. I, I love working with students from all the different schools, but I particularly like Polk State. Uh, and as you know, I'm actually uh, coaching a flight team over there. And uh, we've had a lot of challenges. We don't have an airplane. We don't have access to one right now, but we're uh, looking at renting one. And uh, to help us, uh, you know, within the flight club department, we, uh, we have the flight team. Well, to help us and help them uh, move forward, I want to put a little plug in because can't, I can't wait to, for you guys to see this video. It, they started a GoFundMe project to help fund the flight team, mm -hmm. and it's called GoFundMe.com slash Polk Flight Team, and we'll put that on the uh, website. But at this GoFundMe.com slash Polk 
flight team, there's a, a video that some of the people in the club, or actually some of the officers in the in the club, and, and another uh, person, I don't think it's an officer in the club, he has been there, is in there, and they're part of the flight team, and uh, one of them is actually the captain of the flight team, and very interesting, one of them is the first officer, and it's very, very neat to see and inspiring to see these people and how things like a flight team can change their lives and also competing. Yeah. The flight team actually, and people are like, well, what's a flight team? Well, they actually compete uh, throughout the region and throughout the United States and all sorts of competitions, not just flying, um, but also E6B competitions and aircraft recognition, IFR flying, cross-country flying, etc. And, of course, the spot landing and uh, dropped object competitions, so the real flying type of, you know, stick and rudder stuff, as, as people like to say. But there's, there's so many good things about being part of a team. Other than learning teamwork, it also teaches you to push yourself. And to help push yourself, you help the team. And uh, it really, I think, is a, a great tool to educate people uh, becoming a part of any type of team. So anyway, that's my plug for those folks. I think they do a great job. I don't want them to get up too big of a head because I know some of them listen to this. Also, <laughs> there's another thing that's coming up, which I think is awesome. Sun and Fun is the 21st to the 26th. I want to make sure everybody knows of, of uh, April, excuse me. Uh, the 22nd of April is a job fair at Sun and Fun, and they're going to have some some major, two major airlines are going to be there, some regionals and a lot of other folks. And uh, the people that are, are putting that on have actually, uh, they're, they're wonderful people. And, and we, you know, I, I, gosh, I think uh, everybody should go to this. Bring your suit and tie if you're going to go. And bring some resumes because you're going to talk to some recorders and you'd be surprised who actually shows up at these. Uh, last year I did one and I spoke to 250 pilots uh, to, that wanted to work at the, at the airline I was working at. So pretty inspiring stuff. So make sure you try to make yourself uh, way over to Sun and Fun. We're actually going to do some interviews at Sun and Fun and have a live show from the Stuck Mike Gavcast. Well, guys, that's it. Boy, this is two hours we've gone and... Uh, uh, I, I think this is great that we've been able to get through these questions. Like I said, keep those questions coming in on the contacts page. Uh, you know how to get in, in touch with us. But, uh, you know, I tell you, every time I, I close this, I tell you to do just one thing, one thing to move you forward in your career. Uh, you've been given dozens of ideas here in this podcast today. We have so many different things that you can do. But just, just move forward, uh, whether it's uh, psychologically moving forward. You know, think about what you want to do. Uh, sit down, do pluses and minuses on your on a, a piece of paper, and say, "This is the direction I want to go in. What are the pluses? What are the pluses? What are the minuses?" And then add them up and and see which way you might want to go. And also, of course, uh, I'm available for coaching, uh, although I'm I'm very limited in my time. And that's on the aviationgriffpodcast.com/slash/coaching part of the website. If I can't get you into my schedule, I have a couple other companies that I work with that are really wonderful. And uh, FAPA is one of them. Uh, Cage Consulting is another one. They have some incredibly good people that are at both of those organizations that can help you. It really is important to get help from somebody. These questions you write in are terrific, uh, but uh, get one-on-one -on -one coaching with somebody if it's just one or two sessions. And the reason being is that there's things that you can talk about uh, there that you can't talk about here online uh, because they're very, very personal. And maybe you have somebody that you can go to in your personal life that can help you out. So I encourage you to do that. Find a mentor, find somebody who's, uh, who's going to help you move forward in your career, uh, and try to do that today. Well, folks, from uh, myself, Tom Wachowski, Eric Crump, we really appreciate your listening. 
and we hope to answer some more of your questions in the next episode. Look forward to some new and really fun interviews in this coming year. We'll talk to you next episode and stay flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.